you for listening to this podcasted message from the Garden Fellowship. The Garden Fellowship is a new and exciting church located in Burlington, North Carolina. And we invite you to learn more about our church by visiting our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash Garden Fellowship or by visiting our website at gardenfellowship.org. Now, we invite you to worship God through the teaching of His Word. Well, Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Did I get the wrong holiday? Actually, um, I'm not that far off. We always say, of course, Christmas will be here before you know it. Well, um, we turn today to uh, what's typically thought of as one of the Christmas passages. Turning your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. Christmas always gets here before you know it. But actually, as uh, you probably have heard, Jesus was not born on July on, um, on uh, Jan- when, December 25th. That's when we celebrate Christmas, right? Jesus wasn't actually born on December 25th. We don't know exactly when he was born, but we know it wasn't in the month of December. It was probably something that coincided more with our fall, something September-ish, something like that. So Christmas really is a whole lot closer than you think. But in terms of our study through the Gospel of Luke, we are here at the the traditional sort of Christmas passages. Last week we took a look at a long passage, Luke chapter 1. We looked at about 50 verses there, and our goal was to take a look at both of the pronouncements of miraculous pregnancies and birth announcements to, first of all, to Zechariah, and then to Mary, both of those announcements made by the angel Gabriel. So we took a long passage and looked at that. Our goal was to see in here the, the two responses to the promises of God. The one response of Zechariah and the, and the other response of Mary. Luke, of course, is writing to Theophilus, who is perhaps new to the faith. Perhaps he's considering the faith. We don't know exactly where he's at, but what Luke wants Theophilus to see is he wants him to see the two different reactions to the promises of God. The one reaction by Zechariah is not one for, uh, for Theophilus to imitate, but instead the, the reaction of Mary to the announcement by Gabriel. So today we're going to take just a, a little bit of a step back and we're going to look once again at the second pronouncement, the pronouncement of Gabriel to Mary of her miraculous pregnancy. We're going to look at verses 26 through 38, chapter 1. So if you have your Bible, you can just follow along as I read, beginning from verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. 
And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. I'm really excited to be looking at what is a passage that oftentimes we only look at at that Christmas time of year. I'm really excited to do this because the passage is very familiar to us. And I think the familiarity of the passage, when coupled together with the fact that we generally look at this in a certain season of the year, with certain things on our minds and certain anticipations and expectations, I think to look at this passage in depth outside of that traditional season is going to be helpful for us. I'm really excited to take a look at this over the next few weeks, the birth of Jesus Christ. And so let's just take this passage and just sort of begin walking through it step by step. Forgetting from verse 26, we are told here that in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to the city of Galilee named Nazareth. So right away, we're already being informed of what type of Messiah Jesus will be. He will be a Messiah that will come in the most humble of ways possible. He will come in a way that is intentionally and purposefully humble. He will be born to a couple who called Nazareth their home. And it was an, an axiom, a saying in that day. You probably heard it, uh, from, particularly from the lips of Philip. As Philip says when he's told about Jesus, he says, can anything good come from Nazareth? And it was sort of a saying of that day. Nazareth was sort of the armpit of Israel. And we all know of places like that that sort of have that reputation in our state. Fayetteville, <laughs> New Jersey. Well, yeah, you would be in trouble. But yeah, from the northeast, New Jersey is sort of that area. The southeast, I was always West Virginia was always a thing. If you're from West Virginia, then there's you already have a couple of strikes against you and probably missing some teeth, too. So uh, Arkansas is another one of those places that just sort of has the reputation of if you're from Arkansas, then, well, we don't know. Nazareth was that place for Israel. If you were from Nazareth, then there was just this reputation about that place that, like Philip says, what good can come from Nazareth? Now, none of us had the choice of where we'd be born or who our parents would be. Jesus, of course, was different. He had the complete choice of, of who would be his earthly parents. And so God chose a couple that down to almost the last detail, they were from Nazareth, a place that was not respected, not well looked upon. So he will be a Messiah that comes in the most humble way possible. And this is only the first detail of, of all of that humility about Jesus's life. We think of the circumstances that we'll look at in the next coming weeks, the circumstances of his birth as he is born with animals. We, we have this romantic picture of the birth of Jesus where Mary is this, you know, early 20s with clear skin and nice, uh, just a nice pretty face. And she's here cuddling on this newborn baby that's all clean and everything. And here's the animals sort of sitting around with this worshipful look on their face and everything. Sometimes we even see paintings of the animals with halos over them. And nothing could be more unrealistic. Jesus was born in a place where animals were stored. Disgusting, yes. 
all of us, we can probably, if you're a parent, you can think to those births that you've been um, a part of or could experience. Um, and they take place in a sanitized hospital room and, and attentive staff that washes up and wears scrubs and everything. And even then, it's a messy thing. Imagine a place where animals are kept and stored. Humiliating. Humiliating was the circumstances of his birth. His entire life, we're told, of how he never owned anything. Everything he had was borrowed from the times that he would, the few times that he traveled without walking. He borrowed something. He borrowed a boat or he borrowed the colt of a donkey. Even his clothes. Even the grave he was put in was not his. He was borrowed. The stable that he was born in, if it was a stable, he was, was borrowed. His entire life was an example of humility. And all of that was purposeful and intentional by choice. And we see his coming was purposefully to Nazareth. Verse 27, to a virgin, betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Now, the same sort of thing applies here. We sort of have this romantic notion of the virgin Mary as though she held a noble place in culture, but that was not the case. In Jesus' day, young virgins were near or at the bottom of the social caste. Unmarried virgins were were very unrespected or, or not looked upon with a great deal of social or cultural favor. So let's be careful not to look at this through our 21st century Christmas lens. Jesus is coming in, in humble circumstances. He's coming to a couple from Nazareth to a virgin. So that speaks to us, of course, of the purity of Mary. Jesus, we're told in the Scriptures, Jesus had plenty of, of people in His lineage that were not pure. Tamar, Bathsheba, many others in Jesus' lineage that were less than pure. But when God chooses the earthly mother for Jesus, He chooses one who is pure, sexually pure, a virgin, one that has not fornicated, which is an abomination to God. He chooses the pure virgin Mary. In verse 28, he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Now the words translated, the word translated favored one only shows up in Scripture two times. It shows up here and it shows up in Ephesians 1, verse 6, in that glorious passage that we looked at about a year ago. But what it means is literally one who is the recipient of undeserved, unmerited, unearned blessing from God. Favored one. You are the recipient. You are on the receiving end of a blessing from God that is utterly undeserved by you. There were thousands of virgins in Israel. Thousands upon thousands. Mary was not chosen because she learned all her Bible verses so well or because she was so good to her parents and so obedient. Mary was chosen simply because she was chosen to be the recipient of something, of a blessing that was completely unearned on her part, undeserved, favored one. Verse 29, but she was greatly troubled at the same and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, again, the most common command in Scripture, do not be afraid, fear not, Mary, for you have found favor with God. You have found, and you haven't found favor with God 
because you're such a good girl. You haven't found favor with God because you have kept the Ten Commandments so well. You have found favor with God for the same reason Noah found favor with God. Simply because God has bestowed upon you something that you don't deserve. And Mary is the same. She has found favor with God. Nothing that she could have done would have been deserving of the blessing that she will receive. So you found favor with God. And here's the favor. Here's the blessing. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. We're not told, and I'm, it's complete speculation to, to wonder about these things, but I would suspect that Mary stopped hearing anything at that point. I would suspect that, that uh, at those words, Mary was from then on just struggling to comprehend what Gabriel just said. You will conceive and you will bear a son. So think, for this, think about this for just a moment. Again, I don't think the paintings and the pictures do us a whole lot of good. We, we oftentimes see Mary depicted as a, a woman in her early 20s. And, but the average age, we don't know how old Mary was, the average age of a girl betrothed to be married in Israel at this time was 12. That was the average age. So there were half would have been younger, some older, but Mary was probably in the neighborhood of 12. That's a child. She's a baby herself. She is a child herself. <laughs> so imagine what Gabriel just said to her. You have found favor with God. And here is your undeserved blessing. You will conceive out of wedlock. Now, conceiving a child out of wedlock, even in our hyper-sexually free culture today, even today, that's, there's still some disgrace that comes with that. In Mary's day, I don't, I'm not even sure that I can communicate just what a curse this was for Mary. To conceive a child out of wedlock in this day meant for Mary, certainly she assumes that Joseph will divorce her, betrothal in these days, it was not, it was not the equivalent of engagement. In these days, betrothal was just as legally binding as marriage. It wasn't consummated. The couple didn't see each other alone. But the betrothal was legally binding. The only way to end a betrothal was in divorce. And so at this point, she's assuming that Joseph will divorce her. And she's assuming that her life is now radically and drastically changed forever. Because a 12-year-old conceiving a child out of wedlock in this culture would mean most likely she would be disgraced by her family. She would be put out by her family. She would, she would have nothing better to expect of life at this point than to either enter prostitution or become a beggar. She would be facing a life that is anything but pleasant. From this point on. And, and keep in mind, too, this is a culture, much like the Filipino culture, this is a culture that is built upon communal support. Our culture, we're, we're much more independent, but in Jesus' culture, life was lived through the support of your community, through your extended family. And to be disgraced and to be put out by that extended family and by that community 
was a death sentence for many people. It literally meant that she most likely would now be looking at a life of prostitution. And this is the blessing of God. Have you discovered in your life yet that oftentimes the most profound graces of God don't necessarily come all wrapped up in a nice red bow? As though they're the nice, clean, tidy answers to prayer. That's just sort of put everything in its place. And Yes, that's what I've been wanting. Have you noticed in your life that the most profound graces of God oftentimes look a whole lot more like burdens than blessings? Oftentimes they look much closer to a curse than they do a grace. Just ask Mary, this is my blessing? Pregnant? Me? And this is the favor of God? The blessing of God oftentimes is mistaken for and oftentimes called trials, burdens, even curses. Sometimes the, the most gracious grace of God can come to you in the form of a husband that when you got married, you thought they were on the path to knowing Jesus and pretty much when the honeymoon was over, they have let you know they want nothing to do with Jesus. And so now the, the favor of God, the grace of God might look like a lifetime of loving Jesus while married to a spouse that doesn't. Or the favor of God, the grace of God might look something more like children who are turning your trials into an art form. The grace of God might look more like that. The grace of God uh, might look more like some of the things that we're kind of struggling with right now. And in our family, we, um, we, we have lived here for a year and a half and we have known for a little while that right across the street from us is a, um, a person who's indicted for the attempted murder of two Elon police officers. And he's right there now. Um, and so that's been a something of concern for us for a while. Well, a couple weeks ago, I, I wasn't here, but a couple weeks ago, week before last, Meredith watches out the window while eight sheriff's deputies with vests and weapons drawn raid the house. And we read in the paper this week that it was a cocaine bus. So there's cocaine being sold right there. Sometimes the grace of God looks more like that's not the neighborhood we thought we were moving into. Sometimes the grace of God looks less like a blessing and more like a hideous Supreme Court decision that hits you like a punch in the gut and leaves you in a spiritual and emotional tailspin wondering what is going to come of us? What are, what are my children going to face? Sometimes the grace of God looks more like an out-of-wedlock pregnancy for a 12-year-old girl than it does a nice, wrapped-up, tidy little present from God. So the next time that we're all tempted to ask, why me? Just think of how, think of the, the, the emotional force with which Mary asked, 
Why me? I haven't even known a man. Why me? And yet, she is given the blessing of knowing in advance that she is receiving not just the grace of God, but the most gracious gift of God that any woman has ever experienced from God. So then, Luke goes on to give a description, or or Gabriel goes on, Luke is recounting Gabriel's description of the child. And you shall call his name Jesus. In English, just Jesus. And uh, in the Hebrew, Joshua. Or in the Greek, was Yeshua. But all those mean the same thing. It means Savior, Deliverer. This grace of God, this favor of God, Mary, is your Savior. I don't even know how to process that. The, the, the idea that your child to be born is your Savior. I, I, don't, I don't know words to say in commenta- commentary about that because um, I'm, I'm not even sure how Mary processes that whole thing. We know that she comes to realize this by the time Jesus performs His first miracle, turning water to wine. She has at least some idea that, that Jesus is not a normal prophet, so to speak. But I don't know how she's processing it at this point. Verse 32, he will be great. Now again, the recipient of this is Theophilus. Theophilus was a Roman, and so so Romans had a great appreciation for power, authority, uh, majesty, kingdoms. Um, And so Theophilus, again, Luke wants Theophilus to see very clearly that Jesus is great beyond any of your Roman ideas of greatness. He will be great. In fact, if we sort of think about this for a little while, we can ponder the greatness of Jesus Christ. If we could somehow collect together into a huge, large room all the greatest thinkers that have ever lived, they would all shut their mouth at the wisdom of Jesus. If we could somehow get together all of the most talented artists that have ever lived, they would all fall at the feet of Jesus' beauty. If we could somehow get together all of the most talented musicians, all the Beethovens and Bachs and Mozarts and and, uh, Justin Bieber's and all of those, we we could get all of those in in the same room, then they would shut their mouth and fall on their face at the beauty of Jesus. He will be great. John Piper says, that Gabriel makes what he's saying. It, it, the, the greatness of Jesus can't be put into words. So Gabriel, Piper says, just leaves it at that. He will be great. The understatement of the millennium. He will be great. And he will be called the Son of the Most High. He will be called, in Luke's Gospel, the Son of the Most High by demons and doubting disciples alike. He will be called the Son of the Most High. Even Mark's Gospel tells us that, that the Roman centurion who stood guard at his execution even called him the same. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. So, again, Theophilus, being a Roman, has an appreciation of kingdoms and greatnesses. He's, he's part of the Roman kingdom, one of the greatest kingdoms that has existed on the planet. But the Roman kingdom 
is long since gone, along with the ancient Greek kingdom, the ancient Babylonian kingdom, the ancient Chinese dynasties, the United States kingdom. We are, again, grateful for the blessings that we have been recipients of here. But this is passing away. This is temporary. Jesus Christ, his kingdom will reign forever. He reigns the same as he reigned 2000 years ago, the same as he will reign two million years from now. His kingdom will know no end. Verse 34, And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit. How will a virgin conceive? The Holy Spirit. How will this child be God? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. When the Spirit of God fills a person, it overshadows the person. As John the the baptizer will say, I must decrease and he must increase. The Spirit of God does not come over a person and make much of the person. The Spirit of God overcomes a person, fills a person, and dwells a person and makes much of Jesus. Anyone that you hear on television, on the radio, on Facebook, that professes to be a minister of the gospel and makes much of themselves, is not of Jesus. Anyone who professes to be a minister of the gospel and allows his followers or her followers to make much of them, they are not overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit makes much of Jesus not much of humans. And the Most High will overshadow you, therefore the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And so Gabriel offers proof. Here's your proof, Mary. The proof is in the miraculous conception and soon to be birth of your cousin Elizabeth. And verse 38, Mary said, Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So I want to spend just a moment here as we sort of finish this section. I want to wrestle with just one thing. Let's begin by just asking ourselves, what is the main point of what Luke just said in that section? What do you think the main central idea was? Anybody? Just the main point. Yeah. That's the main point. That is the central idea. The passage is so familiar to us that sometimes it can happen with a passage that's very familiar that it actually becomes hard to see what the main point is. And we begin to look more intently at those things that are not the main point. But the main point here is The child to be born in Bethlehem is God made man. The child to be born is God. And the child to be born is man. And let's wrestle with that for just just a minute. You know, I think oftentimes we as followers of Christ, we make. We make difficulties out of all the wrong things. We wrestle 
with all the wrong things to wrestle with in our faith. We wrestle sometimes doubters or unbelievers, of course. They, there's a lot of wrestling with things like can snakes really talk or um, worldwide floods or fish that swallow people or uh, sun, the sun standing still in the sky or um, a man walking on water. Sometimes we wrestle with those sorts of things. Those who are, I think, um, maybe we can be okay with those things, but then sometimes we can wrestle with things like the resurrection. I know a lot of people who are honest seekers of God that will wrestle with the resurrection. How can a person be brought back again from the dead? And you know, was did Jesus really just faint on the cross and revived a couple of days later, or? Uh, did the disciples steal his body and 500 people hallucinated that they saw Jesus? Things like that. Or we wrestle with deeper matters like the atonement. How is it that the death, burial and resurrection of a man can atone for my sin before God? And we wrestle with things like that. But I think that if if we think about the matters of our faith, I think that we would agree that the greatest of all things for us to wrestle with is not the resurrection or the atonement or talking snakes. The greatest of all things to wrestle with is the incarnation. That God became man. And I would suggest to you that if you can come to terms with that, that nothing else in your faith will present a problem for you. If you can come to terms with the fact that God became man, that God entered into what He created, the God who created time and space entered into it as a being, that Jesus who at one point created the angel that would later fall and become Satan, that Jesus would be subjected to temptation by what had become something from what He had created. If you can come to terms with God becoming man, then is a talking snake really all that big of a difficulty for you? Or is the resurrection... Of that God. I would suggest that if you can come to terms with God becoming man, you would have a bigger struggle with Jesus submitting to death in the first place than him rising again from the grave. The incarnation of Jesus Christ is the greatest miracle of God. And it is something that is is so profound in its nature that we can struggle with this and wrestle with this and, and accept by faith what the Scriptures tell us to be true and still only have a pinprick of understanding of what it means for God to become man. So how does that work anyway? People for 2,000 years now have struggled to understand how it is that God up here 
can become man down here without becoming less of what it is up here. I mean, it's, it seems almost like a logical fallacy to us. It seems that in order to become this, something from this has to be compromised. And theologians for ages have, have wrestled with, well, Jesus temporarily put aside some of his divinity, some of his power, some of his omniscience, some of what it means to be God. He became less of what it means to be God in order to truly be what it means to be man. And when we turn to the Scriptures, the, the Scriptures will emphatically say, no. When Jesus walked this earth, He was no less this in order to be fully this. Paul writes to the Colossians that in Jesus, the fullness of what it means to be God dwelt in Him bodily. The fullness of what it means to be God dwells in Jesus Christ. And so, we turn to places like Philippians 2, in which we're told, in your notes here, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, equality with God was not something he stepped back from. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Now, emptied himself, we would think, well, emptied himself of what? Emptied himself of some of his power so that he could be a man. But that's not what Paul's talking about. That's not the context of what he's saying. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. In other words, God didn't lessen himself to become Jesus. God added something to himself. He took on what it means to be man. God didn't put away anything of what it means to be God, but instead He took on, He picked up, He put on what it means to be man. God now experiences what it's like to be the creatures He created. As the writer of the Hebrews will say, and this is how He was perfected, He now experiences what it's like to be what he created. He empties himself. What does he empty himself of? Clearly in the context there, Paul's saying he's empty, emptied himself of his glory, of his majesty, of his respect, of his adoration. He empties himself of his glory and he comes to those who are from Nazareth. He comes in the most humble form He can. He takes on the greatest level of, hu of humility to come, not just as a humble human, but humblest among the humble. He added to Himself the position of human servant. So, what purpose does God do this for? Why does God empty Himself of His glory and take on to Himself the humble position of a servant. He does it, of course, because he came to die. Mark 10, 45, son of man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. <coughs> Jesus Christ is the only man who has ever been born for the purpose of dying. Jesus Christ is the only man who has ever chosen to die. 
Now you may say, well, I know, I've heard of people who have chosen to die. No. We may have heard of people who have chosen when they would die or how they would die. You've never known someone who chose to die as though the other choice was never to die. Jesus Christ is the only one who had He not chosen to die, never would have. He chose to die to give His life a ransom for those who place faith in His work on the cross. How is that? How can that be? Again, come to terms with the atonement and everything else will almost fall into place. But He comes in the humblest way He can, choosing to die. Take a look in your notes at 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. This is, I think, a wonderful summary of what Gabriel has to say to Mary here. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you, by His poverty, might become rich. Now, of course, we know Paul is speaking there in spiritual terms. Although He was rich, for your sake He became poor, so that through His poverty you might become rich. He comes in this humble form. He takes upon Himself the humility that, that is the humility that He picks up and puts on and he does it in order to trade places that we would receive the riches of his glory. You may have heard in um, whatever context, you may have heard of the Moravians. Anybody ever heard of the Moravian Christians? The Moravian Christians were a wonder. They still are. They still exist today. But the Moravians in the early 18th century were an incredible group of Christ followers. They lived in present day Germany, Austria. And they were, uh, there's a lot that I could say about the Moravians, but just suffice to say, they were a people that were passionate Christ followers that were moved by the lostness of the world around them. And so what happens one day with the Moravian Christians is, is uh, one who was, their, who was a leader of the Moravians by the name of uh, Count Zinzendorf. Count Zinzendorf makes you kind of wish that your name was preceded by Count, right? It'd be nice to be Count somebody. But Count Zinzendorf one day meets two freed Christian slaves from the West Indies, the Caribbean. They were slaves to Danish slaveholders in the Caribbean. And they were converted followers of Christ. And he meets them, and he's so moved to learn of an entire group of people that don't know about Jesus, meaning the the native slaves in the or not I guess they weren't native, originally native, but the slaves that were now in the West Indies slaves to Danish slaveholders. And and he shared this with with the community there and they became so moved by this group of people that didn't not only did they not know Jesus, but there was no way they were going to find out about him. This wasn't the day of of tweets and YouTube and, and put a, a, a radio station on the air that, that proclaims the gospel. These slaves had no way to hear. And so as they were moved by the Holy Spirit to take the gospel to this 
these people that were slaves in the West Indies, they realized, well, how are we going to get it there? How are we going to do this? And they came to the conclusion, the, the way to get the gospel to them is to be one of them. And so Moravian Christians began voluntarily selling themselves into lifelong slavery in the West Indies in order to take the gospel to slave. Dozens, dozens of Moravians sold themselves into lifelong slavery so that they could take the gospel to that group of people. To this day, Christianity in the, in the Caribbean can trace its roots to the Moravians. And that's a, a small picture, folks, of what Jesus did for us. In order to bring the gospel to us, he doesn't shout it down from the heavens and write across the sky. He becomes one of us, but not just one of us. He empties himself of all of his glory. And he comes in the most humble fashion possible. We talk a lot about the Christmas spirit. In that time of year, you know, there's a lot of talk about Christmas spirit. And we want to have the Christmas spirit. We want to keep the Christmas spirit. We don't want anything to ruin our Christmas spirit. What is the Christmas spirit? Isn't the Christmas spirit just sort of this festive, jolly sort of time of the year in which family seems to become maybe a little bit more important, friends become more important? We, we have this uh, uh, feeling of, of generosity and we give and all well, that's good. But what a pathetic substitution for the true Christmas spirit. The true Christmas spirit is to be moved in our person, to be moved to the point to have the mind of Jesus Though he was rich, he takes on poverty so that his riches would be ours. That's the Christmas spirit, that we would be moved with the same attitude to exchange our blessings for burdens so that others may hear, so that others may receive. That is the true Christmas spirit I would encourage. All Christians should have that year-round. enjoyed this podcasted message from the Garden Fellowship. The purpose of the Garden Fellowship Church is to make disciples of Jesus Christ through loving God, loving each other, and loving our community. We hope you were blessed by this message. You can learn more about our church by visiting our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash garden fellowship or by visiting our website at gardenfellowship.org.